I am the master, and you will obey me. Listen to Dan Hadley on Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, or face the consequences. <laughs> for Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network, with me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks, and yeah, your designated driver. Yes, the new look Type 40, back again. Still the same wide-ranging, non-gatekeeping show for everybody. Whatever decade or century you started watching, reading, or listening along to the timeless adventures of the Time Lord, our hero. Doctor Who, we talk about it all on this show, so come and step into our TARDIS and share this journey together here with us on Type 40. Yes, and although time may be nothing to a Time Lord, we don't like to waste too much of it here on Type 40. Let's bring in our uh, vid-fired, remastered, and original, authentic, lunatic TV industry insider. It's good to have you back, Simon Horton. Oh, thank you very much, Dan. It's lovely to be back. Vidfired. I've never been called Vidfired before. I wonder if everyone, does everybody know what Vidfire is? It goes back a while, doesn't it, Vidfire, when they developed this technology, the uh, the, the sort of unofficial restoration team. Yeah. I think it was the 1990s, the, yeah. late, the late 90s sometime. Well, I think both of us could be prime candidates for vid-firing now, entering, you know, definitely middle age. I've had to accept <laughs> middle age. And from what I understand, vid-firing, it takes an original sort of material and sort of injects, fires new life into it, extra pixels to make things move that little bit quicker and more well, natural. Yeah, well, also what it does is it was, it was a process that, the, as I say, the restoration team developed uh, yeah i think it was in the 90s dan a lot of the old episodes that we had were only available on film prints that had come back from overseas and so that didn't they didn't look the same as they had been when they were on television when they were recorded on video cameras in the studio so the idea of vidfire is it literally interlaces uh an, an extra frame between every film frame and that makes it look back like a video camera look as opposed to one. a film camera look and and the, the, the difference is remarkable <laughs> I mean, you really can't anybody would see the difference 
you could see it instantly, couldn't mm-hmm. you? I remember there wasn't a great deal of time. In between the release of a couple of the black and white VHS tapes yes. and the same titles making it to DVD, there was only a two or three year period, by which point they'd really pushed a lot of boundaries, hadn't they, with the vidfire technique, and you could really tell even in that short period. Oh, it looks amazing, and the quality on them is, is, is stunning. I remember them putting a clip of the Tomb of the Cybermen vid-fired on. I think it might have been the Aztecs, I can't remember, one of the early yeah. DVD releases. And it was just this brief clip. <laughs> you know, everybody's jaws just hit the floor. The quality, the difference in quality was phenomenal. I'm not the most techie of people. A lot of these terms do pass me by, and I get them muddled up the way I just did now. And if you're like that too, and you're wondering what on earth we're talking about, and you want some further reading, required reading if you like, it's not required to enjoy the conversation we've got coming up in a moment, but it does add a bit of colour to it all, I think. So there'll be links in the description and everywhere else, so you can go and, and read up on some of this. And, yeah, take yourself deeper, deeper into this topic, which, Simon, missing episodes. Oh, the Holy Grail. No Doctor Who fan can resist the lure of this corner to the Doctor Who universe for very long, can they? No, not at all. Uh, it, it's one of those things that, that, that was, incredible as it seems, it, it wasn't even known about sort of 40 years ago. People didn't really realise that episodes were missing at all. And now I, I don't think there's a day goes by that Doctor Who fans don't think, oh, just maybe, just maybe something will be yeah. fine found in the next few weeks. It, 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 the lure is always out there. It's not as if you look at the calendar and think, oh, maybe next year, maybe this time next year. Maybe Our fingers are perpetually crossed, aren't they? <laughs> Absolutely. And, of course, every so often, little rumours will, will filter out that something has been found. And literally everybody just, it, it's like a shark feeding friends. Everybody dives <laughs> on it because we're all desperate. We're desperate to see some, some old episodes come back. Desperate to know, and as soon as possible. And there's, there's some guys... A group, a collection of people, some of them work alongside one another and some of them sort of work in different pockets, who are really deep into this and are kind of go-to people, not just for anybody, I suppose, who's looking to retrieve film cans or thinks they may have found one, but just as sources of general information. Fountains of knowledge, peerless prophets and sages. It's a really dark and meandering sort of path, isn't it? The, The story of the missing episodes that runs its way through decades now of Doctor Who history. A frustrating one to read about and to hear about, but I think once that subsides, there's a romantic side to it all too, and this sort of film noir aspect you imagine people with turned up collars, and everything drenched in black and white, and yeah, it's all very clandestine. I I think that's part of it. None of us would, would have wanted this situation at all, don't get me wrong, but... I, I think you're right. You, you, no, nobody welcomed this at all. We all want the episodes back, and we wanted them to have never gone in the first place. But you're quite right. There is a romantic side to all this, and and the story of a how they went missing, b how some of them have come back is just as interesting as the original production stories on on when they first made the the episodes. It's it, you're right. It's a labyrinthine, twisting story, and it's every bit as interesting as as you can imagine it is. I can't think of anybody better to talk about all this with, to open the door, open the can on the missing episodes here on Type 40 than this gentleman who spoke to us a short while ago. We won't keep you waiting too much longer for for that. But if this is your first Type 40, it's only fair to let you know that if you want to do some time travelling of your own, each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is a tap away on the device of your choice. And you can even let us know what you think of it all if you get in touch with us via our social media platforms. There'll be links to all of that later on in the show. 
as well as a trip into the not quite so dusty corridors, but equally lined with great content for you to discover or rediscover over at the Fandom Podcast Network. Listen out for that a little later on. But yes, here he is. You won't want to miss a single word of this. It's our interview with the Restoration Team's own Missing Episodes expert. He's literally written the book on it, hasn't he, Simon? It's a brilliant book. So yeah, over to our conversation with Richard Molesworth. I should say first, shouldn't I, that we have got a third voice with us today, and you've known our guest for many, many years, I understand, so would you like to introduce him? Oh gosh, what an honour, what an absolute honour. Yeah, I, I, I've known this particular guy that we're about to introduce since, I think it's about 1985 we first met, so we go right the way back to the sort of early days of, of the real heady days of fandom. And uh, So he's a gent that I've known for a long time, on and off, um, lost contact with, reconnected with, um, now in, in the days of... of digital media and all the rest of it um, and he's an absolute star and a hero and he's got so much involvement to do with Doctor Who both past and present and it's my absolute pleasure to introduce a very good mate of mine Richard Molesworth welcome Richard hello Simon hello Dan hello to you both hello to everybody um, thank you for inviting me to join in today I have no real idea what you want to talk about, but <laughs> by all means. Ah, uh, well, there's one born every minute, topics. isn't there, Simon? One born every minute. <laughs> we've got, yeah, there's nowhere, nowhere to hide, nowhere to go. Yeah, we've got, we've got a very specific subject to talk about, which many would say, there's no pressure here, <laughs> many would say that you're, you are the authority on. And that's all about missing episodes. That's what we're going to chat about today, is missing need- episodes, missing Doc 2 episodes. You are some of an authority on it, aren't you? I mean, if we, if we, before we go into the missing episodes, I'd love to sort of just go back, just take you back to those heady days. I think it was 1985 that we first yeah, met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would have been at one of the Birmingham local groups. And I'd love to say I can remember the very, very, very first time I met you. And I can't because my memory's so rubbish. But I think it was at the Solid Hill local group. I think it was. It was in the Scout Hut. It was probably just after the cancellation in 1985. I think that was one of the first local group meetings. I think we possibly had David Saunders uh, come down, for, who was at the time in charge of uh, the coordinator of the DWAS. Simon, I think you were there selling a bit of merchandise. Um, I was. That's not like um, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, we, I mean, we had a, a, my old uh, colour TV up on stage connected to a VHS recorder, which we watched some very dodgy nth generation copies of things like Mind of Evil or Talons of Wen Chiang or... I mean, stuff we just couldn't get hold of. And then I started going over to the Cannot local group meetings as well, which uh, Simon, you also attended with um, Steve Brost and Mick Norman. Oh, I still keep in touch with. We, Me and Steve usually meet up every week or so for a beer, and, and Mick joins us when he can, and Paul Venezes um, joins up. So, you know, I've, I, there's a lot of people from those days that I'm still in contact with, um, still very, very good friends to this day. So... It, it was a it was a great time to be a Doctor Who fan. It was you know it was a bit more cliquey than it is now, but in a way it's, I like that. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because in a way, the early the early to mid eighties really, I always think as the absolute the zenith of Doctor Who fandom in many ways, simply because if you come out of the seventies. Where, where if you were a Doctor Who fan, you genuinely felt you were the only Doctor Who fan probably in the world. And then really, for me personally, it was it was the, the, the anniversary year, the 20th anniversary year in 83, that brought to my attention, actually mainly due to the Longleat celebration in April 1983, 
that first gave me the inkling that there were other fans out there and my god there were a lot of other fans out there which i didn't know about is that the same kind of experience for you yeah i mean i, I think i joined the dwess at 1982 and kind of got to going around andromeda and nostalgia brought a few fans oh, in wow. so i didn't know there was this fandom element to it but i didn't really know an awful lot i was kind of like a second generation of the you know i didn't join the dwess in the 70s yeah but i've since amassed a huge back catalogue of fanzines and cts and everything and reading through um what fandom was like in those times it's still you know it's still a very real part of of the program but certainly there was that big explosion in the 80s um you know the five faces of doctor who in 81 was probably um an important milestone for many people it, it was the time where to go back to missing episodes we started to find out what was left in the archive in about 1981 of the william hartland patrick trout and even john perk stories and of course you know at the long leap uh, convention in 83 they were showing things in the cinema tent if you're one of the 200 lucky people that could actually get in there where i think they showed dalek invasion of earth and the dominators and possibly terror of the autons terror of the autons i remember terror of the autons going in on color from ian levine's pneumatics and i think the focus definitely was um in the early 80s on the current series but there was an awful lot of focus on the past you know jeremy bentham's book came out in 85 the early years it's one of the things that that does slightly irritate me with current doctor who it, the thought that everything has to have Jodie Whittaker's face on it and the new logo on it, and that there can't be a market for classic Doctor Who, which is something that I think the, the Blu-ray box sets do phenomenally well, which is another project I'm involved in. And to be able to have a focus that's solely on classic Doctor Who, I don't think alienates anybody that might possibly be into new Doctor Who. They'll look at it and go, wow, that's great. Like we did in the 80s, seeing the early years, we weren't thinking, oh, why isn't Colin Baker on the front cover of this? And Well, the feedback you know, that we get, Richard, and the comments that we get, it couldn't be further from the truth. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's it, it's odd because because you're right, Richard. Back in those sort of early mid '80s days, there was very much a case of yes, the, the focus was obviously on the current show that was in production, which at that time was Peter Davison. But there was very much an embracing of the legacy that went behind it, and 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 this kind of idea that you could now, if you're into the Peter Davison stuff, you can now go and discover this whole other world that you possibly didn't even know existed, and it all felt part of the one. The one entity, whereas now, for me, it very much feels you're either into Jodie Whittaker or you're into anything prior to Jodie Whittaker, and the two are very much like oil and water. They just simply don't mix, almost. That's the feeling I get. I've got so many you know, projects I'd like to have a go at, but trying to get anybody interested with a licence... Where they, you know, what's the focus? Is it classic Doctor Who? Yes, it is. Can we have Jodie Whittaker on the cover? Not really, because we're talking about Hart or Trout or John Pertwee. <laughs> oh, that's such a niche project. Is it really? I mean, there are people that would love to have books dedicated to those specific eras and not just, you know, well, let's have three chapters on the old Doctor Who and then 12 chapters on Jodie's Doctor Who. It's not how to do it. But anyway, we're, we're digressing. We're getting slightly off the yeah. point here. So Going back to those mid-80s days you're talking about, you might watch Talons of Wen Cheyenne back on those old, in, in on the little old VHS machine that we used to, 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 to set up for those local group meetings. And you could Uploading guarantee... the VHS machine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uploading. With piano key yeah, push buttons. <laughs> you remember those? Yeah. Um, and, and you'd have to mess with the tracking. You know, oh, this, God, yeah. 
for anybody that's 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 probably younger than about uh, 30 you won't have a clue what we're talking about when we talk about tracking on on top loading various <laughs> machines but it didn't matter what what program what what classic episode we were watching if it was color you could probably guarantee it will be in black and white anyway and you might get the odd flash of color depends how I the pecking order on the tape trading circuit you were <laughs> absolutely and those piano keys ones guys when you when you have to push them down sometimes so hard there was this feeling that they may well you know, if they looked at you the wrong way or if you didn't handle them correctly that they may well bite back and take one of your fingers <laughs> off that's what i always worried about or never come back up again Right, where are we? Where are we going to start with all this lot? Because the the subject of the missing episodes, of course, this is this is why we've got you here today. In, even in something as broad as the Doctor Who universe, it's a topic that gets people so excited, so frustrated, and it's also intoxicating and and maybe even a little a little romantic after all these decades. And Simon and I have been sort of skirting around this this whole world for a little while, but we wanted to wait for the right time to delve in a bit deeper. What we find with missing episodes, when we've compared and had conversations about it and talking to other fans, is that every fan goes through this process as a group where we, we have conversations and we speculate and then we get to the point where we sort of wish things into existence before coming a little more full circle maybe and, and grounded and open to what's what's feasible and what's a reality. You know, We've all been there, we've got the t-shirt drawfuls of t-shirts maybe but you've written the book on it haven't you quite literally (laughs) i mean i recognize your name from 101 things over the years but wiped was your missing episodes book wasn't it published in 2010 it's quite hard to get hold of now but it's the definitive it shouldn't be i mean the first edition was published in 2010 i did a second edition in 2013 um and uh, i will probably do a a third edition at some point but no, no direct plans at the moment. I mean, 2010, gosh, 10 years ago. Back then, it all seemed so simple. At the time, there wasn't that much focus on missing episodes. I think the last episode that had been discovered back then was probably episode two of Dynamic Master Plan, which was around 2002, 2003. I'm, I'm not doing this with notes, so forgive me if yeah. I can't remember specific dates or times or instances. Um, the whole thing had kind of felt like it, it kind of got to a, a, a point where it might not go any further so it seemed the ideal time to do a book and it was always something that I was phenomenally interested in even back in 1985 although it might not have been that apparent Simon but I think we were all back in 1985 episodes had just started coming back you know we'd had the Nigeria Returns, Reign of Terror, um, Abominable Snowman 2, Invasion of Dinosaurs 1 so episodes had started coming back. A and trickle, that was, a trickle. A trickle um, but that was enough to you know generate phenomenal amounts of conversations at local group meetings and letters to fanzines and it was always something that I'd always kept tabs of and tried to investigate further and and it it was a book that I felt needed doing unfortunately the good guys at Telos agreed and it proved to be quite a remarkably popular title and then things started to get a bit crazy in 2013 and um, I don't know if you've got any specific questions or Obviously, it's been six years now since the, the last return, the very public return of nine episodes by Philip Morris, wasn't it? From I can't remember where he, where he retrieved them from now. Somewhere in Nigeria. Africa. Ah, no, it was Nigeria. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so uh, that was so ridiculously exciting. Uh, even though there have been rumours about it for, for some time, the way it was rolled out, the way it was launched. The rumours side of it was it's still something that, that echoes through the whole topic of missing episodes today and it, it's rather unfortunate really that what is known as the omni rumor 
has dominated the conversation for the best part of seven years and it's all basically a load of rubbish what age specific are we on at this podcast, it's family podcast. It's a very rude word. i'm sure you could leave. if i do say rude word do bleep it out but it was all a load of uh rubbish but the, um, yeah i mean something like that you you know you mentioned this thing the omni rumor i haven't heard anything about that for for a while now i thought it had sort of died down but i know instantly what you mean by the omni rumor and of course it was this sort of whispers that absolutely everything had been recovered wasn't it this was around if not in 2013 it may have been just after that and because philip morris is a very char- charismatic guy isn't he and it's what does he call himself the indiana jones of doctor who retrieval yeah and yes some people he does call himself that. that i rather wish he wouldn't because it's right rather a silly uh, way of, of trying to describe what he does. And he does a very, very solid job at trying to track these things down. Back in the early days, you know, I was only so happy to help, along with Paul Vanessis and a few other people, in getting Phil started. And we're still very much in touch with Phil. And he's doing a, a cracking job. But um, for a variety of reasons, Phil keeps himself very much to himself. And I don't really want to speak for Phil or no, try and put words into Phil's mouth. What, what's, what's interesting is going back to that Omni rumour that you're talking about, and Dan is quite right, the minute you say Omni rumour, I did, I know immediately what you're talking about, even though you didn't say, and for anybody that isn't aware, this is this rumour that started, I think it was around about 2012, I don't know whether you, you might remember that better, Richard, but I think it was about 2012 when this rumour suddenly came out that, as Dan says, literally every single missing episode was supposedly back and in existence and we were just waiting for them to be released and this persisted for quite a while and it went away again and then it came back again and then actually what came out were only and i do say this in very much inverted commas only two stories um, which was the majority of the web of fear and the entirety of the enemy of the world and Obviously, that comes with then a very bittersweet feeling that on the one hand, people are absolutely made up to have these two stories back. But there is this nagging disappointment that, oh, we, we thought everything was back. So that Omni rumour that you're talking about, I guess, set up so much expectation that almost you couldn't help but be disappointed when only, in inverted commas, two stories come back. Yeah, it was almost a perfect storm of how not to do things or or how not to manage expectations. Up until that point, myself and other people on the Dot2 restoration team, like Steve Roberts and Paul Venezes, you know, we were quite active on online forums, um, engaging with rumours whenever they turned up and people asked us, you know, people always ask us, I've heard this, I've heard that. How often How often would new rumours turn up, Richard, on your esti- estimation? Was it was it every month there was always something around? Well, there's, or was always it rumors, there's always rumours and, you know, you can always debunk them. They're always very easily de- debunked with, you know, just a little bit of research and a little bit yeah. of know-how and a little bit of knowledge. But the problem back in 2013 was that these rumours were allowed to go unchecked and the reason that we couldn't contest them or talk about them is that we knew full well that it was enemy of the world and five episodes oh, of web of fear so you knew even then that when these rooms started you knew those were the two stories that those were definitely back at that point well not definitely back, but that, that phil had located them and that they were coming right. back but when people say oh we know you know there's a talk of 90 episodes being found we can't just it's not 90 episodes it's nine yeah. Can't you can't, you, no, you put, can't put debunk you in a very you, particular yeah. situation, doesn't it? Yeah, and um, I think um, yeah, Paul Venezis is a good friend of mine. Did try various exercises in trying to manage the situation, and 
um, didn't totally succeed. But when you can't give any degree of honesty in an answer, you know, if someone says, is it true with 30 episodes are turned up or 40 episodes, you can't say, no, it's not true because there's only nine when you can't say that because for a variety of reasons, there was a coordinated launch strategy or an announcement strategy that it wasn't down to Phil, it was down to BBC uh, Worldwide at the time. I think they were, was it still BBC Worldwide? Or I think it was at the time, yeah. I know it's BBC Studios now, but BBC Worldwide. They'd invested a lot in, in getting the DVDs ready and the episodes available on um, iTunes for uh, to make them available. And quite rightly, they they got a very you know good launch strategy um, oh God, and yeah. we all had to abide by it for anybody listening who isn't aware presently 97 episodes are still officially missing from the bbc archives aren't they and to all the results of that program between the late 60s and the late 70s wasn't it where large quantities of, of videotape and film that had been stored in the bbc's various premises Film libraries were uh, routinely wiped or even destroyed, weren't they, to make way for newer programmes, to save on material. It happened for various reasons, isn't it? Some, some were practical and some were legal, as I understand. Never with any, any malice. It was administration, one could say. But it's, and it wasn't just Doctor Who, it was, it was numerous programmes over a long, long period of time. And you know, it could be argued that all these decades later that via one means or another and, and the, the dedication, the tenacity and the, the stubbornness maybe of, of some TV historians and Doctor Who fans. It's a miracle in a sense that so much material has returned because originally how many episodes how many episodes were missing at one point, Simon? What was the greatest number that you can remember? I, I remember Richard would probably remember better than I can. Can you remember Richard? Well, it depend, <laughs> depends how you define missing. I mean, if you think about it in this way, from the original videotapes, when Doctor Who was made on videotape, there are about, I don't know, maybe a dozen William Hartnell and Patrick Tratton episodes that weren't shown from videotape. They were shown from uh, 35mm film. They were very much the exceptions to the norm. But if you uh, remember, there was, I think it's 253 Hartnell and Troughton episodes. Um, every single Hartnell and Troughton master videotape had been wiped by 1974 apart from the few film episodes that were transmitted from film that were then in the film and videotape, well, it was still the film library at the time, you know, basically all of the 60s was wiped out by the videotape wipings. At the same time, between um, 1972 and about 1977, uh, about half of the John Pertwee episodes were also wiped. All of season seven, apart from Ambassadors Part One, all of season eight, apart from Demons Four and Claws of Axos, uh, a great many people forget this, don't they, Richard? Because obviously over time, people have been able to restore those, return them to, to colour via various means. So now, after 20, 30 years, we've sort of got taken that a little for granted now. And you know, I sometimes forget myself that we lost so much of the Pertwee stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Pertwee era is now thankfully complete and it's a miracle that it is considering how... I mean, it really, it really was... About 50% of it was destroyed um, at the time. Um, And getting back the 16mm film recordings that were held BBC Enterprises for overseas sales, those black and white film prints, which are invaluable and even more so now. Getting two-inch NTSC video recordings back from Canada of things like Inferno and uh, Sea Devils and Colony in Space uh, and Curse of Peladon. 
can you remember, Richard, you know, you've mentioned there that, that, that when they did wipe a lot of those Pertwee tapes, there were certain episodes that, that survived. Was there a reason why those, those, why Ambassadors of Death Part 1, you know, was there a reason why those episodes survived? Was it that they were just preserving episodes or did they literally slip through the net? Um, I don't know that they slipped through the net, but I don't think they, they survived by, by design either. I think it was just the way the engineering department released batches of videotapes for wiping. They were probably released under batch numbers, which didn't really correspond to um, complete stories or complete seasons or complete programs. You know, if they released 30 tapes for wiping, five could have been Dot Two, five could have been Are You Being Served, five could have been Doom Watch or something like that. And they just needed to, you know, free up some tape space. Um, I certainly think that the only story that perhaps was deliberately kept was Day of the Daleks. That seems a bit random to me that those four episodes um, survived. That's the earliest um, complete Doc 2 story that survived on videotape. So um, is it a possibility that maybe the BBC decided to hold on to that one because it was the first, uh, I'm right in thinking it was the first colour Dalek story? Yeah, it was, no, wasn't it? No. Because I can certainly remember back in, I think it's 1980, the, the Doctor Who Monthly, as it was then, the Doctor Who Monthly, the first um, winter special. That's the interview, the, the famous interview with Sue Malden, isn't it? Mm. When, when, for the first time ever, people like me knew, firstly, uh, that, 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 that all these stories existed uh, uh, as they were, but secondly, that they didn't all exist as they were because so many of them had been wiped. You know, that was a real voyage of discovery to me to discover how many episodes there were, but then shockingly, how many there no longer yeah, were. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that list in that Dot Who monthly winter special was you know, just a seminal moment. But... I mean, once you got over the shock that things like Fear from the Deep and Power of the Daleks and Dalek Master Plan, no episodes of those existed at that point. It was the things that, that didn't make sense. You could see, okay, they've got all of An Earth Child and all of Daleks and all of Edge of Destruction, none of Marco Polo, and well, they probably chucked the story away. But then you get to things like The Tenth Planet and you think, why would they keep episodes one, two, and three and not part four? Why have they only got part two of Space Pirates? Why have they only got part one of The Web of Fear? And it was trying to work out why it it didn't make sense in in any kind of logical way that that set me on the journey to writing wiped ironically where you can work out in each and every instance why something is still there in 1982 when that or 1981 whenever it was that this was published how the BBC were at that point in 1981 where they got so many. Pertwee episodes in black and white, so many in colour, so many gaps. I think at that time there were 136 missing episodes. And the fact they're down to 97 now, I think is, you know, pretty remarkable. That's nearly uh, a quarter of the, of the episodes that were missing then have now turned up. Was it that point, was it, for example, that winter special that first got you interested in the missing episodes as a, as a subject that ultimately maybe led to you writing wiped is that the point that you can absolutely without, the, without a shadow of a doubt uh, i think we're more or less of a similar age simon although some of us have aged better than others where we can remember buying the 1973 radio times doctor who anniversary special and seeing all those photos of you know the first doctor's adventures and seeing stories like power of the daleks Eve of the daleks 10th planet and reading those short brief really tantalizing um, story outlines yeah. and thinking, God, wouldn't it be wonderful to see those? And then 
buying the target books in the 70s and reliving those old stories you knew that you know each little paragraph in that radio time special was you know a four-part or a six-part story and it'd be great to get the opportunity to see that again and occasionally you know the bbc in the 70s would give us the odd repeat i can remember being giddy with excitement knowing that planet of evil was going to be repeated um in the summer holidays one episode a night and then Sontaran Experiment as a 50-minute compilation, you know, Doctor Who on five nights a week, what what could be better than that? And, you know, I remembered I'd seen them the year before, and I was thinking, well, they're showing these old stories. Wouldn't it be great to see some of the, you know, the earlier Doctor stories? But nobody knew. Nobody knew what still existed. And even, you know, in the months before that, that Winter Special was published, all that most people knew was things that uh, Tomb of the Cybermen, obviously that was the great missing story. And people like Jan Vincent Rudsky and Stephen Payne that had helped and Ian Levine that helped the Lively Arts documentary in 1977 with their programme research. They'd been given details of what episodes existed both at the film library and at BBC Enterprises. But there wasn't really a comprehensive list um, that was known and publicised to Doctor Who fans well, throughout the country and you know later throughout the world as to what survived and what didn't from the first 10 years of the programme. So that, that list was just a jaw-dropping moment because not only did it say, right, this is the entirety of what it exists, you, you, you just had to deal with the fact that so many things that you'd been wanting to see for years and years and years, and only read about, you knew you'd never ever get to see again because because they didn't exist. I remember reading that list as well. I was a little little younger than... I'm going to run this in, guys. <laughs> Take a moment. I was a little younger <laughs> than both of you. So, yeah, being that little bit younger, I wasn't really sure what I was reading. And I think I maybe read it two, three, four times over over a few months' period before it really sank into me. What the article was actually saying and what that information, what it what it really, really meant for somebody who's... Whose uh, fandom was only really just starting to starting to blossom, gentlemen. It was starting to blossom. I understand, Simon. You've got a copy of Richard's book to hand. Yeah, I have because uh, you know this is this is I'm, I'm holding for anybody that uh, that well you can't see it, but you trust me that I'm holding a copy of, uh, of of Richard's book here. And this is this is obviously the the logical extrapolation of that original article in in Doctor Who uh, Winter Special from 1980 because because this is it. This is the definitive work on on Doctor Who's missing episodes and. I mean, to to call it a, a doorstep would be an underestimate. You know, it's a, a look at it. You know, it's, right. it's a weighty toe. If you've never got a copy of White, I, I seriously cannot recommend it highly enough. It is a really weighty tome. For me, it's it's ultimately been something of a bible, um, just to keep on referring back to over and over and over again. Richard knows actually because because I because I, I hammer him with questions all the time about about little bits that might exist in the archives or whatever, and this has just been invaluable to me to just go back every so often. I'm obsessive over what might be there, what might not be, uh, what where did that particular sensor clip get taken out of why, and it's just this book has just been brilliant. Now, Richard, you know this is this shows an enormous amount of work. To, to call this exhaustive would be an underestimate as well. How much work is involved? What was involved in the production of this book? Because it looks a massive undertaking. Oh, it was. I mean, it took me about best part of twelve months to write. You know, and that's getting up at nine, a few hours on the keyboard, break for lunch, a few more hours on the keyboard, go and have some tea, think about what you're going to do tomorrow. It was the first first time I'd ever written a book as well. You know, I'd written um, articles for magazines and whatnot. So 
And I'd also, at that point, been making a few documentaries for the DVD range, so it might sound a bit odd and a bit condescending, but it gives you, doing things like that gives you an idea of structure and how to structure a particular yeah. project. So I wasn't that daunted about doing doing a big book other than I knew there was a hell of a lot of information I needed <laughs> to convey. And hopefully I, I just went into it in uh, as a, an exhaustive and um, clinical amount of details I possibly could. Did you know it would end up this this weighty? Well, it, it, that's the second edition. I mean, the first edition, I think there's about an extra 150 pages in the second where I, I went even a bit more um, in-depth on tabulating things. I mean, I must say, you know, if you like books with lots of complicated and silly tables in, that's your book because, you know, I, I, nothing, I love nothing more than making a list, a list of this and this, that and that. I think that most really Doctor Who fans do. I was going to say you're a Doctor Who fan. Of course you do. <laughs> I just feel sorry. If somebody who's worked in publishing, I just feel sorry for whoever had to proofread your book there, Richard. <laughs> Either edition. Well, um, I mean, fortunately, the publishers, you know, Stephen uh, Walker and David Howe, they're fans. So, you know, they're, they're very good at picking up uh-huh. problems. And I was very fortunate in that. People like Andrew Pixley and, and Richard Bignall volunteered to look. So there were a few typos in there, but on the whole, there aren't that many um, boo-boos. And was it your suggestion to write the book, or did they come to you with the suggestion? Oh, no, well, I, I'd been trying to write that book for years and years and years. And the first time I, I wanted to do it was all oh, back in about 2001, 2002, before Doctor right. Who came back on the BBC. And I was trying desperately to interest BBC books in doing it but they weren't interested. So, you know, they were just doing the, the, I think, Paul McGann, New Adventures and Old Doctor. But in terms of um, non-fiction books, they weren't that interested. They were doing publishing contracts, uh, sorry, licenses with people like Reynolds and Hearn, who'd done, I think, the um, Richard Bignall's On Location book. So I'd, I'd spoken to them about it. But one of the things that um, uh, they wanted to do was make it a lot more visual, to, you know, to have a lot of photos and telesnaps which would have involved a lot of cost and it just we couldn't we didn't get the numbers to work so i just i got in touch with david howe's company they'd started up doing very niche books and put the idea to them and they they kind of bit my hand off to be honest um and were very very supportive and you know were, were great in terms of um, you know just let me do it and do it in the way i wanted to do it they were they, they were very very good was very well received, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't think I saw that many negative reviews of it. But did that surprise you at the time? Because let's be honest, this is a very, very thick book about a very, in effect, dry subject with a lot of, of facts and figures and, as you say, tables in there. And it's great for Doctor Who fans because we're all obsessed about lists and we're all OCD, I think, to an extent. But nonetheless, did that surprise you that it was as well received as it was? Not really. I'm, I don't know if that sounds a bit big-headed. It, it, to me, it was always the, the one unwritten Doctor Who book that needed to be written. And I figured I'd better be the person to write it, because if I don't do it, someone else will make a right hash job of it. Yeah, there was an appetite, um, wasn't there? There was a definite appetite for it beforehand. Yeah, I think it, it was a book that needed writing, was the, the simple thing. And, you know, I, I felt I was the only one qualified to do it. <laughs> I think. Well, I think that you'd done, <laughs> partly, it's your work probably on the on the DVD range with some of those special features had really kind of brought that side to Doctor Who to life in a, a, a way that was just more palatable maybe for the, for the fan who was perhaps more casual fan who uh, knew there was missing episodes of Doctor Who but hadn't yet been seduced 
by that particular story, that off-screen story. And so for you to sort of, I was going to say, boil it down. <laughs> Can you boil something down into like a book that's got a two-inch spine? <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a lot of information. I, I would imagine there's probably a lot that you did have to leave out because it was either uh, too much minutiae or, or simply uh, that it, it just didn't quite fit with the way you wanted the the, the book to to read and to and to roll because obviously it's still going to be readable, isn't it? It's still going to be digestible that you take it all in. Yeah, I, I mean it's the opposite from boiling down. Everything that's boiled up. There's so <laughs> much in there. The, 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 you know, the pages and pages of detail. I've done a load of articles for a fanzine called DWB on Doctor Who in the archives. They were quite well. popular. I then reformatted, not reformat, rewrote from scratch for Doctor Who magazine a series of articles on the archives. I knew there was a. You know, vast amount of interest in um, how we are, where we are in terms of Doctor Who's um, presence in the archives. And obviously that also relates into missing episodes, not only what exists and why does it exist, but what's missing and why is it missing? I I always thought it was a subject that old school Doctor Who fans would be specifically interested. I mean, if you came into the series with Chris Eccleston or David Tennant, you probably wouldn't give a monkeys about Missing William Hartnell, Patrick Trout, and episodes um, generally, but you know, perhaps one or two of those people might be interested. I don't know, but certainly old school Doctor Who fans, I think it's um, subject very dear to their heart. It's the holy grail, isn't it? We all we all still want to see, uh, even if it was one more episode come back, that we still we still want to see that one. I, I mean, I don't know whether I'm assuming you are aware of the the recent Philip Morris um, interview that's gone out where he where he claims absolutely categorically he knows that of another six episodes specifically without listing what they are or where they are. He says he knows what they are and he knows where they are. I, I, I really can't comment specifically on it, but, but does that does that ring true with your experience as well not really i mean i've got the utmost respect for philip and he wouldn't say such things lightly um not at all but i don't always agree on his uh, interpretation of, of events and that that's what we're all here for to you know have a different perspective on everything um i know phil is very very um haunted shall we say by the loss of web of fear part three um, and that was something that uh, certainly Paul Venesis always impressed, tried to impress upon Phil. If a tin of film has been sat in an archive for 40 years and has sat on the same shelf that it has in those last 40 years, it's probably very safe where it is. Mm. But as soon as you do something to change its fate, if you draw attention to it, if you move it, the risk to that film, to that, the contents of that tin, whatever you're doing, it is quite immense. Um, and I think Phil obviously now understands what Paul was talking about. Um, he absolutely is convinced that somebody spirited away the film print of Web of Fear Part 3 and From Under His Nose, and it's out there somewhere. My reading of the situation is different. I think that he drew attention to it. The station manager picked it up, wondered why uh, all the films in the archive, this batch of films was important all of a sudden to somebody took the film away, maybe tried to flog it, perhaps decided to keep it to one side. I think it was destroyed. I don't think we're ever going to see that film again. Now, Phil's a lot more optimistic on on that front. He thinks it's still out there and he thinks he can track it down. I'll wish him all the, you know, the win, best win in the world if he can. But sadly, I don't think that's the situation. 
Now, I don't know what has led him to suspect that there are six episodes in private collections. It wouldn't surprise me if there were episodes in private collections. I just don't think we'll ever know about them until they surface. Now, a good friend of mine, Paul Venezis, has said a couple of years ago, he, he thinks he knows where two Hartnell episodes are. Um, but yeah, I think I saw Paul talk about, I think that was on a, in a magazine article or something. I did read that myself, yeah. Yeah. Paul okay. wouldn't say he believes something unless he had a very good reason. You know, he doesn't say such things lightly. But and my scales of belief are exactly the same. Until I see it, I don't believe yeah. it. So I still think there are 97 missing episodes. I don't think there are two Hartnell episodes in the private collection. I hope there are, but I've got no evidence of that. And I don't know what Phil's six episodes are and what evidence he's got. Yeah. But until I've seen the evidence, then it means nothing to me, really. Because there are private collectors up and down the UK and probably all over the world, aren't there? People who either worked in the industry before or or have just have travelled the country maybe as, as a hobby where they've picked up film cans just to own film cans and, and sort of played them via whatever whatever means they have, they've inherited or kept over the years, just as a way of sort of recapturing the past, isn't it? And they, they may not necessarily be aware into Doctor Who specifically. It's a different kind of enthusiast, isn't it, partly, Richard? That's the impression. Completely. And, and some people have a lot of difficulty accepting that somebody could own a collection of films and not know whether they've got any episodes in that collection. It's completely believable. The way the oh, film yeah. collectors work, they just like projecting stuff. They swap the films, they trade the films. They don't necessarily check up, see if it's in an archive somewhere. Why would they? I mean, they've got a film. Everybody, you know... It, it never occurs to them that they might have the only copy of a particular film. Do you kind of feel in your in your heart of hearts, you know, put it, put aside the fact that okay, you're saying yeah, you, you won't believe it until you see it, but do you believe in your heart that it's likely, given the research that you've done and the experience you've got with this, do you think it's likely that there are other episodes out there? The more that you learn, uh, um when it comes to how episodes were distributed by the BBC in the 60s and 70s. And you start to think, well, Marco Polo was sold to something like 28 countries. That means there are 28 copies out there. There are not. There are probably less than a dozen, probably less than half a dozen. Um, you know, I've tried to work out. I know there's a great internet resource called, um, it's John Preddle's website. It'll come to me. But that lists all of the overseas uh, screenings of Doctor Who, and he tries to work out bicycling chains and where episodes were sent to. I've tried That's to do the term, isn't it? Bicycling, where they would distribute it yeah. from different parts of the same country. That's right. So the same film print of Marco Polo was probably used in six, seven, eight, nine different countries. So there aren't 28 different copies. And then when you get down to the, the Patrick Troughton serials, which were very poorly sold, compared to the Hartnells, you know, some of those stories were only sold to three, four, five, six countries. I think we're looking at, at most four film prints, possibly three. And if you look at something like Power of the Daleks, one of the most poorly sold stories, there was one film print that went to Australia. There was a second film print that went to New Zealand. Uh, New Zealand's film print then went to Singapore. And those are the only three countries that sold it. So there are only ever two film prints of Power of the Daleks out there. Now, we know the Australian print um, was junked, no longer exists. The Singapore print went missing, or I can say went missing. 
when I, I wrote to the Singapore TV station about 1992, I wrote to a load of TV stations just after Tomb of the Cybermen came back, um, asking what, you know, have you still got any Doctor Who films? And Singapore came back to me in 92 and they said that then that they no longer had any Doctor Who's and they gave a big list of what they hadn't. So we know that, you know, that had gone by 1992. So I think something like Power of the Daleks uh, and 10th Planet as well, that only went to the same um, three countries, two prints. I think there's very little chance of those two stories ever turning up. It's the same. Season four seems to be very underrepresented in the archive, and that's the one I think we'll be very lucky if we get any season four episodes back again, simply because of the way it was sold and where it was sold to, and how how very few copies there were out there. I think we were so so lucky to get Underwater Menace two back. You know, it's the early surviving Trouton episode, and it's from season four. I genuinely be very surprised if any more season four does turn up. It would be lovely. But the only thing that's a possibility there is Gordon Hendry, the film collector that had Eve of the Daleks part two and Face of Swans part three. He bought bought them in a car boot sale in about 1983. Um, we know they were um, junked by BBC Enterprises Round about 1978, I think they could possibly have been the Australian returns. So I think a lot of things went walkies out of BBC Enterprises after they received episodes back and then junked them. So I think there's always a possibility that there might be odd episodes out there. I think Reign of Terror also, there, there have been lots of different films of that that have turned up over the year. I think there have been two copies of part three um i think a, a copy of part one turned up on ebay about five years ago which nobody knew about so i think reign of terror is a possibility four and five might be in a private collection um but we're clutching at straws i mean anything could be in a private collection apart from master plan part seven and i suspect tenth planet and power of the daleks because surely 10th Planet Part 4, isn't there a chance that that might be in a private collection? Because am I not right, right in thinking that that went missing following it being used on Blue Peter and that was the, the last time that print was seen or am I misremembering that? And, and oh, it, was definitely so, used by, it was definitely used by Blue Peter, but I, I don't think there's any truth that it went missing after Blue Peter. I just think it went back to the, the BBC Enterprises. That's where the copy was ordered up from. It was sent back to BBC Enterprises and then BBC Enterprises junked it. So when it comes to junkings as well, don't forget there were two kinds of junkings at BBC Enterprises. There was their sales vault, which is where all their 16mm negatives were, and they probably had a positive for every negative. And those were where they kept basically their archive of things. So if they were selling programs, that's where they were getting them from. When those were junk, they were generally junked by story. So you take all of the episodes of Marco Polo and all the episodes of Dynamic Master Plan, and you junk them all at the same time. And when those were junked, they would order in a skip, take out the film cans, take the film out of the can. The film, it wasn't on a, a metal holder. It was just loose with a little cork in the middle, little plastic oh, thing. I see, yeah. And they'd just take the film out, knock out the middle, and it would all go... <laughs> that will translate well on audio, into a skip. <laughs> and they'd do that story by story by story. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Mm. But secondly, they would get prints sent back from overseas, um, which would turn up completely out of the blue and they'd probably look at them and go are we still selling that oh we've still got the negatives so we don't need these return prints chip them 
or are we still selling that? No, we haven't got the rights to that anymore. They need to be chucked. So those probably weren't catalogued. They were just came in, chucked to one side. Anyone could possibly help themselves. Now, those are, I think, the episodes most likely to have been liberated from the BBC in the in the 70s, those sort of returns from overseas. So those might be the ones that might be out there in, in private hands. But, I mean, yeah. you mentioned as well um, uh, Dalek's Master Plan Episode 7 there. Um, that That is the one that everybody seems to be pretty much agreed. There is absolutely zero chance whatsoever of that ever turning up. Do you think that's that's fair to say? I think that's very fair to say, although Paul Venezis would beg to differ. And he goes around telling stories of how it might be possible that a telerecording would have been made. And yes, he's perfectly correct, it's possible, but I don't think it's likely. Um, certainly BBC Enterprises never had it. It was never offered for sale. It was never on Windmill Road's racking shells. It was never unspooled into a skip. So I think episode seven, <laughs> no chance. And this is purely because it was the it, it, it was the Christmas episode in the middle of that 12 part series that, that, that just, they didn't offer it for sale simply because it was a standalone Christmas episode that didn't really need to sit within the story. And so it just never got sold. So Dalek's master plan got sold as an 11 parter rather than as a 12 parter. Yeah, and only Australia bought it and then the censors objected to it. So it was never, the, the, the transaction was never completed. Australia never actually uh, showed the story. Um, and the prints, well, who knows what happened to those prints. Putting put on the spot here, if there was one story that you would just love to see returned more than any other, do you have a story that you just, okay, you can forget the rest. If I can just have that one back, I'll, I'll be a happy man. You know what? I, I don't know. If, the, if I was to give you an answer today, it would be a different answer tomorrow and a different answer. <laughs> As, I, because of season four's um, paucity in the archives, I think, I mean, Power of the Daleks would be would be ideal. I mean, the first Trout story is so historically important. It's got the Daleks in. I mean, today that would be my story. Tomorrow it might be Fury from the Deep. Uh, one day it might be Space Pirates because I'd love to see that one missing Robert Holmes story. Robert Holmes is another pet project of mine. Uh, one day I'd like to see the Savages. I mean, one day I'd like to see all 97 of them. I, I, it's not going to happen, but different days have different uh, different tastes. What I think is interesting is that when The Web of Fear and The Enemy of the World were returned, I don't think I will be alone in being most excited about seeing The Web of Fear, but actually ultimately loving The Enemy of the World far more than I loved The Web of Fear, which is really odd because that's the one that you would not expect to enjoy. And so it's interesting that you say, you mentioned something like the Space Pirates, and the thought is, oh, it's going to be really, really boring because everything we know of the Space Pirates gives the idea that it's not going to be the best Robert Holmes story in the world. But because The Enemy of the World, I honestly think The Enemy of the World was a surprise to people. I don't think people were expecting to love The Enemy of the World. We'd only got one episode. Was it episode three at that time? Episode, episode three, and it was one of the most boring, tedious episodes. Absolutely. Most of it in a I corridor remember, somewhere. One of those like local group meetings, Simon, when it was announced, oh, and the next episode we're going to be showing is Enemy World 3. That's probably when you did the most business at your store, mate. It probably <laughs> is. <laughs> because <laughs> nobody wanted to watch it. It's, it's a really boring episode. Uh, in, on its own, it's just awful. Whereas Web of Fear Part 1, what a great episode. Of course you're going to love Web of Fear, having seen only Part 1, and of course you don't want to see more of Enemy of the World. It's the same when... Um, Underwater Menace 2 turned up. I mean, Underwater Menace 3 is not the best episode of Doctor Who ever, but part two I thought was fantastic and yeah. it totally changed my opinion of that story. 
and it's interesting, isn't it? We have these expectations of what a story is going to be like, and then you actually finally see it, or bits of it, and suddenly you, you realise you got it all wrong. And there's, to an extent, there's a, there's a, there's an element of received wisdom in that, isn't there? In that, back in the early days of fandom, we were told that the Tomb of the Cybermen was the best Doctor Who story ever, so we kind of received that wisdom. And the, the Gunfighters was awful because it was the lowest viewing figures, and yet I love the Gunfighters you've got to divorce the expectations away from what you actually get when you see it and that's why it makes literally every single episode exciting to want to sort of get back there isn't an episode in, that's missing that i wouldn't say oh i i'm not bothered about seeing that no i agree though i want to see them all i, I do confess oh i think it was 1999 when uh, i got the phone call oh missing episodes turned up oh great which one episode one of the crusade oh really <laughs> it's like, you know, of the 110 missing episodes, that was, you know, really bottom of the list. And, you know, it was lovely to see and everything, but that's probably the, the one I've been least enthusiastic. <laughs> I know where you're coming from. Aren't we complicated creatures, Doctor Who fans, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's uh, time for a quick break now. It's just a moment or two to tell our listeners about some of the other conversations that uh, you could be missing uh, going on right now on other shows across the Fandom Podcast Network that are just a download or a stream away. Here's a few words from a friend of ours about all of that. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to the Fandom Podcast Network and all of the other awesome shows we have to offer. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, our weekly pop culture news podcast. Blood Kings, our Highlander podcast. Couch Potato Theater, our podcast celebrating our favorite movies. Time Warp, the Fandom Flashback podcast discussing a year in movies and our favorite pop culture topics. Enzo, the NFL podcast. Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. Union Federation, our Star Trek and Orville podcast. Hair Metal, the 80s and early 90s rock metal podcast. Type 40, our Doctor Who podcast. Lethal Mullet, a 1980s and 90s action film podcast. What a Piece of Junk, a Star Wars podcast. And our newest show, Making Treks, a new Star Trek podcast with a deep dive into the final frontier with host Mark Newbold and Adam P. O'Brien. You can enjoy all of these great Fandom Podcast Network shows on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. Fandom Podcast Network is also on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also find us on Facebook under Fandom Podcast Network. You can also email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter under Fandom Podcast Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalised you there, now let us clothe you too. Head over to tpublic.com, search for the Fandom Podcast Network, and you'll find a store full of the team colours for all those shows on t-shirts, hats, mugs and a TARDIS full of other items. Treat yourself, treat your other selves and it all goes to support the network continuing to fill your ears with 100% fabulous fandom goodness. Back to missing episodes and, and missing episodes in 2020. 
in many respects, guys, it seems to me that the 60s era of Doctor Who is attracting more interest and it's almost more alive than ever. Uh, obviously, what does exist is out there uh, due to the efforts of people such as yourself, Richard, and all, you, all your colleagues looking better than ever on people's shelves already or if they subscribe to BritBox or whatever else. But I think proving more surprising to people like us, maybe you thought that we'd seen it all. It's not just the production of the new animated episodes to go with the soundtrack to stuff that we haven't got in its original form, but it's the resources, the creativity, and the use of technology that's being harnessed to bring those missing episodes to life and to sort of help them move again. For example, we've got the remastering of Telesnaps using funky new apps I noticed a few weeks ago. And just the other day, I was on a social media platform, I think it was Twitter, and I was shared this video, a really short video, about 20 seconds or so, and it was a line of Patrick Troughton dialogue. I can't remember what story it was from. So they'd matched a, what would have been a, a, a static picture to the dialogue, and using this technology, they'd got it so that Patrick Troughton's lips could move and speak those lines again. I found that not only it, there was this big wow factor, but it's just incredibly exciting. And you think about the possibilities where that could go further down the line. If this is something you can download for free, for example, what could it do? Amplify it. But uh, does that excite you, Richard, in the way that it may excite someone like me? In all honesty, no, it doesn't. Okay. Um, <laughs> whenever there's, you know, whenever something like that occurs, you look at the little clips and people colorizing black and white stuff or um, upscaling footage for a, you know a two or five or 20 second clip and it looks fantastic but then you start thinking about the practicalities of using something like that to do a 25 minute episode of dot two one 25 minute episode and it becomes almost untenable because of the amount of time and the costs involved labors of love you can't put labours of love on a commercial release when you've got no. commercial deadlines. It's something we found, I say we, it's the Royal We, something, uh, working on the DVD range, the restoration of Mind of Evil Part 1 into full colour. That was something that took an immense amount of man hours and people working on it found that to be able to bring it in on time for the agreed amount of money it, it was an almost impossible task. So good intentions and, you know, people playing around with stuff in their bedrooms and spending hours and hours and hours filling up a two-second clip, fantastic. But you can't upscale it and you can't put commercial costs and deadlines on that sort of thing to make even a single 25-minute episode of Doctor Who worthwhile in that respect. You know, I think that at the moment working on the Doctor Who Blu-ray range, it's phenomenal, really, the, the work that goes in to upscaling standard definition 625 line, 2-inch and 1-inch video into something that looks as good as it does on the Blu-ray box sets. I was quite sceptical how good season 26 would look, and I was yeah, pleasantly we surprised were, yeah. on the Blu-ray. Um, when I saw those, how, how well those had upscaled, and how good the video looked. But to go back to your original question, I think the sort of things fans do to amuse themselves and long may continue, but I don't think there's going to be any practical, 
professional uh, application to that sort of technology anytime soon, I'm afraid. It's a very particular kind of conversation to have, isn't it? And, and uh, time and time again, as a, as a fan base, the inventiveness of it and the imagination it never ceases to surprise me. But there probably is certain aspects, there are a, a cap, aren't there? There's only so far that things can go before they become a different production altogether. Simon and myself had a conversation about that quite recently, didn't we, Simon? What, what are your thoughts on it, Simon? I think I agree with Richard. It's great fun for somebody to play with in their bedroom and actually put out there um, if they're able to and, and let people have a look at. And, and Doctor Who fans have always been so enormously resourceful going back to, again, to sort of the, the, the 70s and the 80s when we were all doing fanzines and, and holding meet, group meetings, all that sort of stuff. It's been, it's, I think as a Doctor Who fan, you kind of want to do... Doctor Who fans are not generally... A passive bunch that want to just sit and watch the program just wash over them and so i think it's always going to be there this innate desire to mess with the the legacy of the show in some way and play with it and improve on it and enhance it given a choice between watching um, a computer animated version of a missing episode that's put to the soundtrack or watching a, a, a very good telly snaps reconstruction that is just photos strung together with dialogue. I'd go for the latter. I'd always go for the for the telly snaps because that's closer in inverted commas to the to, to the original yeah. and how it would have looked rather than messing about with computer animating it. But having said that, you know, the, the mission to the unknown restaging that was done last year, that's brilliant and it was fantastic to watch and I wouldn't take any away from it but at the end of the day it's still not the mission uh, mission to the unknown episode and so for me it's always going to intrinsically have um, a limited appeal that's not to say it hasn't got an enormous appeal because it has but it's still it, it, there's a finite amount of excitement that I can generate from that because it's still not mission to the unknown for example more than fair there's no sign of any of the the mystique uh, certainly the conversation and the speculation surrounding the missing episodes in any form. No sign of that dying down any time soon is the gentleman. That's that's probably here to stay. And, uh, yeah, I hope we're going to have a conversation about it again at some point. Who knows, Something, some nice big surprise may turn up, even if it's a year, two years, five years. Let's, uh, let's hope so. We'll probably be returning to the subject at some point, won't we, Simon? Oh, I dare say we'll be returning to the subject many, many times. And, and I would just love to think that we were able to do a podcast at some point in the future with, with a, a, a new episode that has just been returned. As I say, that's the holy grail, really, for Doctor Who fans. That's what we're all waiting for, is another episode to come back. And I honestly believe that it will happen. I'm not really in much doubt. It'll happen at some point. I, I have faith in that. And it sounds like your association with the missing episodes doesn't, isn't going to sort of uh, wane any time soon, Richard. No, what I was going to say, I agree with Simon. I think there will always be another missing episode that turns up at some point. Uh, it could be next week, it could be next year, it could be 10 years, we just don't know. But I don't think we've got to the point yet where we've the last episode has, has been found. I don't think we'll ever get to that point, to be honest. So there will always be another missing episode at some point that surfaces. How, why, when, what context... Uh, couldn't even begin to speculate at the moment. Well, we've got our fingers all crossed right now as we sat around in this virtual circle. Thank you so much for your time, Richard. It's been fascinating listening to you talk about this subject, which you've obviously you've got this sort of close association with and all this deep knowledge of. We'd love to get you back on at a later date to either talk some more about this or, or various other things. We'll, we'll have to see about that. 
yeah, be absolutely happy to. It's been a, a fun hour and a half. But yeah, not happy to come back whenever you chaps want to touch base on any other subjects I might be able to help out with. Yeah. Just you be careful what you say there, Richard, because we'll have you back every week. <laughs> We're gradually, very gradually covering the whole, the whole of the Doctor Who universe, one way or another. <laughs> and once again, our thanks to Richard for talking to us. We may be hearing more from him at a later date. The story keeps bubbling away, doesn't it? We keep wishing and we keep scanning the forums, the Facebook sources and having a word, or word comes to us. They'll never go away. The rumours will never <laughs> stop. And I genuinely believe that every episode will not come back. That's the, that's the sad part. I genuinely do think that there are episodes that are lost forever and will never, ever be recovered. But... I don't think we'll ever, ever, ever give up the hope because we can't be 100% certain on anything, really. I don't think the rumours will ever go away and we will always pounce on every possible little scrap. I genuinely believe there are definitely episodes out there and I genuinely believe that they will continue very, very, very slowly to trickle back. I don't think we've seen the end of the return of missing episodes. I'm confident in that. We've all got our opinions on it. And I think we'd all like to be out there sort of finding these things for ourselves, in a sense. It is that romantic. But the truth is that this particular mission is in very, very safe hands. Not just Richards, but several other individuals who are, who are dotted around all over the world, keeping track, keeping one eye open in various places, and I would imagine growing and maintaining relationships with other people who are either like-minded or there's a crossover of interests. So, sincerely, I mean, I, I think that the, the right people are on the case. This is everybody who's in, involved with the Hunt for the Missing Episodes, and our best wishes for your continued efforts. We're on your side. Some of we, we, are. We, may we may pester you as a community, but we are on your side. We, we really are right behind you. And, and I think it's probably fair to say that there isn't a single television show out there that gets as much attention as Doctor Who does with regards to people out looking for the missing material. I think it's probably pretty much top of any old material hunters list is Doctor Who because they know there's such an appetite out there for it. So yeah, we're right behind you guys. The story continues. But for now though, the time rotor's kicking in here at Type 40 and calling time on us. We'll be back soon enough with another edition You'd hate for that to go missing, so uh, look out for it wherever you found this. On Apple Podcasts, for example, we're all over that. Or maybe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, Podbean or Spotify. We're also over on YouTube. You can stream Type 40 there on the Fandom Podcast Network's channel. As ever, you can get in touch with us through those social media platforms. Instagram and Twitter at Type40DoctorWho. Even email us, Type40DoctorWho at gmail.com. Or if you're feeling really brave, you can grab yourself some real-time talk over in the Type40 Facebook group. You can find me. I'm scattered throughout all of space and time, but mostly on Twitter and Instagram as the Spacebook, rambling on about whatever catches my eye, imagination, or both in popular culture, inside and outside of the TARDIS. Simon, where can people find you on social media? People can always find me on Facebook. If they just go on uh, Facebook and look for Doctor Who, the Hoonatics, uh, you will find me there as one of the admins. There's links to all of that in the show notes, as well as a few other little bits and bobs that support the general content of this show. You know, extra information, as I was saying earlier on. We always have the time, if you have the space here on Type 40. But yeah, for now, thanks for listening. We'll speak to you soon.
Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, is a space book production for the Fandom Podcast Network with music by Problem Being.